This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. In the new satirical film American Fiction, Thelonious Ellison is a frustrated writer who can't get his latest book published because editors say it's not black enough. So he decides to write the kind of black book they want out of spite, using every tired and offensive trope he can think of. He submits the manuscript under a pseudonym, and to his surprise, he's offered a million-dollar book deal. This film is TV writer Court Jefferson's directorial debut. He got his start as a journalist before becoming a screenwriter for shows like Succession, The Good Place, Master of None, and Larry Wilmore's former late-night TV series The Nightly Show. In 2020, he won an Emmy for his writing of Episode 6 of Watchmen titled The Extraordinary Being, along with Damon Lindelof. American fiction features a star-studded cast that includes actors Jeffrey Wright, Issa Rae, Adam Brody, and Sterling K. Brown. Cora Jefferson, welcome back to Fresh Air. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so the main character in American fiction, Thelonious, whose nickname is Monk, played by Jeffrey Wright, is a writer and college professor who writes this book out of spite. And the book's contents play into all of the stereotypes about violence and trauma with these over-the-top characters. But of course, Monk writes it under a fake name. So to add to the lies, he says he can't reveal his true identity because he's running from the law. I want to play a scene. Um, It is Monk and his editor, played by John Ortiz, and they're talking with Paula from one of the publishing houses over speakerphone. Let's listen. Hello? Hello, Paula. Arthur, so wonderful to hear from you. Um, I hope that you are with the man of the hour. I am indeed. He's right here next to me. Mr. Lee? Uh, yeah, this is he. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, damn it. <laughs> what the f- right, okay. Um, yeah, I was a little confused at first, but... <laughs> We're both very excited to discuss Thompson Watt's offer. Yes, well, first of all, let me just say that all of us here at Thompson Watt are thrilled with my pathology. It is about as perfect a book as I have seen in a long, long while. Just, just raw and, and real. And Mr. Lee, is this, um, is this based on your actual life? Yeah, you think some bitch-ass college boy can come up with that No, 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 I don't. <laughs> that was a scene from the new movie, American Fiction, In court, uh, this film is based on Percival Everett's 2001 book, Erasure. When did it become clear to you that you wanted to adapt it? Oh, wow. Uh, Almost instantly. I found Erasure. I'd had a really bad 2020. We've all had a bad 2020. I don't think them saying anything unique there. But mine was bad, uh, not just because of COVID, but also because I had... uh, I'd come very, very close to getting a television show on the air, uh, and uh, at the last minute they killed it. That was about September of 2020. And so I was feeling pretty bereft and kind of creatively adrift, and I'm a pretty slow reader normally, but this was a book that I just devoured. You know, when I, it was one of those ones when I, when I set it down and, and went somewhere else, I would sort of, my mind would drift toward it, and I would come back and, and read more of it. Um, it, it, was, it felt like it was a book written specifically for me. Like the themes within it were things that felt like... Parallels you know, to your yeah, own life. Well, well, in so many 
odd, eerie ways. And so about 50 pages in, I knew that I wanted to try to adapt the script. Uh, I would say about 100 pages in, I knew I wanted to adapt it and direct it. And then at some point, I started reading the novel in Jeffrey Wright's voice. That's how early I started <laughs> thinking of Jeffrey as being this the lead character for this. He just came to me. Um, and as soon as I was done, I, I, I called my manager and asked him to contact Percival so that, I, so that I might beg him for the rights to the book. The depth of the family storyline is so refreshing. It's a refreshing surprise because the movie promos and trailers don't actually promote this part of the story. But his mother is suffering from the early stages of dementia, and he's being asked to take a leave of absence from his job as a professor because of his anger, which means he's leaving without a salary. It feels so relatable and universal. And as you mentioned, a lot of parallels to your own life. Yeah, yeah. No, you know, like Monk, I had had these issues come up in my different professions. I started out as a journalist for about eight or nine years, and then I started working in film and television uh, in 2014. And I had had these experiences in both of those um, arenas in which people had, you know, when I was a journalist, people were like, you know, toward the end of my career, it had had started to feel like... um, there was this revolving door of misery that I was expected to write about. And so sort of on a weekly basis, they would come to me and say, do you want to write about uh, Mike Brown getting killed? Do you want to write about Trayvon Martin getting killed? Do you want to write about, uh, you know, this unarmed black person getting killed? It just felt like there was this constant churn of just uh, uh, violence and um, misery. And so it's like, I don't want to do this anymore. And so when I got into film and television, it was thrilling because it felt like, great, we're in the world of fiction. We are not bound by the realities of anything. We are allowed to write about black people in space. We're allowed to write about black people riding unicorns in the underworld. It doesn't matter. Like, we can do anything. And then, lo and behold, uh, you know, people would call me and they would say, do you want to write this TV show about a, about a, a black teenager murdered by the police? Hmm. Do you want to write about this movie about a slave? Do you mm-hmm. want to write this movie about uh, crack dealers? And it just felt like, oh, even here, even, even, here, you're still even in the world it, yeah. of fantasy, there's still just such a hugely limited perspective as to what black life looks like. And then on top of that, as you said, you know, there's a lot of these family issues that that, that take place in the novel that, you know, there's a trio of siblings and I have two older brothers and, you know, we've had we've had our sort of like uh, various ups and downs in our relationship. You know, there's an ailing mother, as you mentioned, you know, my mother um, didn't die of dementia, but my mother died of cancer about eight years ago. And, and mm-hmm. you know, I, I moved home at a certain point to, to help take care of her as Monk does. Yep. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there's a there's a, a, an overbearing father figure that in the, in this story that sort of reminded me a little bit of of of, of my father and and who looms large in my life and my, and my brother's lives. Uh, there was just so much overlap. It just started to feel strange, as as I said, as if somebody wrote me a book specifically. You know, um, this cast is is a pretty amazing cast. Another person that does such a great job in this film is Issa Rae. She's hilarious and really laser sharp in this film. She plays the character Sintara Golden, whose work is is basically what sets Monk off because her debut is We Lives in the Ghetto, and it's <laughs> exactly the kind of work he's railing against. In this clip, she's at a literary festival speaking before a packed house and reads a passage from her book. Where are our stories? 
you know, where's our representation? And it was from Matt Lack that my book was born. Would you give us the pleasure of reading an excerpt? Yo, Sharonda, girl, you be pregnant again? Mights be, I tells her. And if I is, Ray Ray is going to be a real father this time around. This scene is so over the top and hilarious. Um, You know, Monk is just in misery watching all of this unfold. What was it like to write that scene? Was it kind of fun to write it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the whole movie was fun to write. There is catharsis in getting some of this stuff out. This is, you know, I do relate to a lot of the situations in which Monk finds himself. And and it's also just, you know, I think that satire to me has always had a special power. You know, I think that there, you know, I'm forgetting, I, I heard a quote recently that I forget who said it, but it was, uh, if you're going to tell people the truth, then you need to be funny or else they'll kill you. And I think that that, that that is sort of what satire is able to do is it's really able to, you know, it's a big tent thing. It sort of allows people to come in who might not otherwise want to listen to what you're trying to say. Um, and, and so I think that writing that scene and, 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 you know, all the scenes in which there's, there's you know, you're talking about these serious issues, but you're talking about them in a way that makes you laugh and in, in a way that sort of makes other people laugh. I think that there's a power in that, that, that um, you know, other kinds of art don't have. That's so interesting about satire, because I, I agree with that quote. But it also just feels like for the last few years, world events and life in general have felt so ridiculous and fantastical that sometimes at least for me, it's been hard to consume satire um, Mm -hmm. because everything feels like it's just completely over the top and we're laughing to keep from crying. Yeah, but I think that even if if we're laughing to keep from crying, then I think that there's, that's still, that's still a worthy goal. You know, I think that 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 is, uh, if nothing else, if we lose our ability to laugh and find joy, that's when like really all is lost, you know, like even in the worst of circumstances, if we can't find ways to, to enjoy each other's company and to make each other laugh and to tell stories and to fall in love, like uh, all of these things that, that, um, make life worth living. If we, if we can't find ways to do that stuff, then we're, we're really in trouble. You know, I heard you say that the spiritual predecessor to American fiction is Hollywood Shuffle. Yes. which is a satirical comedy that came out in 87. It was directed and co-written by Robert Townsend and Keenan Ivory Wayans. And I'm going to play mm-hmm. a clip from it. But Robert Townsend plays Bobby Taylor. He's a black actor trying to make it in Hollywood. And it's loosely based on Townsend's experiences in the industry. So this scene I'm about to play, the character Bobby has nabbed this role in a movie called Jive Town Jimmy's Revenge. <laughs> <laughs> and he's about to get in a fight with some street gangs. It's so full of stereotypes, Court. Um, it's amazing. Yes. So on the set, Bobby is wearing a big Afro wig and wearing a shiny suit and is reciting this cartoonish jive talk. Let's listen. You killed it, my brother. My main man. I loved it, this dude, baby. He was, he was, uh... Cut. Why is Cut. he stopping? Bobby, that was terrific. That was terrific. What, what, why'd you stop? What happened? Oh, there's, there's no problem. I just, I just, I just forgot my line. Okay, that's fine. No problem. You want to look at the script? No, I'm okay. 
great. Okay. Let's go again. Excuse me, Sydney. Before you do, I have another very good idea. Yeah. Could you tell him to be a little more, you know? Mm, yeah, Bobby. Uh, Bobby, I, I need uh, a little more black. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Uh, like, right. stick your ass yeah. out, uh, you know, bug the eyes. You know how to move, you know? Jive ass. Jive ass. Let's slate it. Let's go again. Jive okay. Sorry. Sorry, Sydney. Scene 10, Baker 1. And action. That's a scene from the 1987 film Hollywood Shuffle, directed by Robert Townsend. Court, when did you first see this film? What kind of impression did it have on you? Oh, my God. The biggest. I saw that movie when I was about nine or ten years old, probably. Yeah. And it just changed my life. Uh, that uh, I'm sorry. I'm trying to compose myself. I love that. That, that scene is probably the funniest scene in the movie. It I is. Die, yeah, it I'm is. dying laughing. Um and, I, and and the reason it had this profound effect on me, I didn't, I, did, I certainly didn't know the word satire back then. I didn't know what that meant, but I knew how it made me feel. And you know, nine ten is is you're right in the thick of learning about you know slavery and civil rights and sort of the origins of this country and and the ways in which people teach you these things is basically by showing you horror movies. You know, I I remember watching like Eyes on the Prize, this documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember watching. Um, Mississippi Burning, yep. Gene Hackman, and Willem Dafoe. It's really great. It's about the Mississippi murder of the uh, the three civil rights actors. I remember who, who now. Going around. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a great movie, but it gave me nightmares. I remember. I remember specifically like uh, waking up in the middle of the night, worrying that the Klan was going to sort of like come to my house and and harm my family. Like that. The, the, that is how we were teaching these lessons to children and and I really like those movies I think that they're important but when I found uh, Hollywood Shuffle I was like wait a minute this is talking about racism the way that those other things are talking about racism but it's doing it in a way that is making me laugh every every three seconds like in a way that in a way that's hilarious and, and accessible and not scary and just sort of and joyful in some ways you know Monk has a Ph.D. Both of his siblings are medical doctors. Their parents, they, they have this beach house. You interweave their lives seamlessly, and it feels real and accurate. But how did you navigate, or was it, was it a challenge at all navigating or incorporating these characters without, like, without falling into that kind of respectable depiction of blackness? Yeah, I mean, th- that's something that the, the minute Jeffrey sat down to first discuss the script with me when we first had our first meeting his immediate question was he said you're not trying to do some talented 10th bill cosby pull up your pants and behave in front of white people thing are you and i knew instantly when he asked that that he was the perfect person for the role because that's that, that had been something that i'd been thinking about as i was making it and it's something that that i didn't want to do you know i think that, that there's this scene that again i don't want to spoil it but there's this scene where monk and centara meet toward the end of the film and they kind of have their ideological conversation about where they where they come from in their art practice and and their approach to making stuff that I felt was really important to make sure that we didn't we didn't come at this from a sort of like respectability politics pull up your pants kind of thing that that you know this is a person who who's you know Again, I, I don't want to spoil it, but but that scene was important to me to include in order for us to avoid this kind of thing because you know one of the things that Jeffrey and I decided when we first set out to make this was we never wanted to police blackness. We never wanted to police art, and we especially didn't want to police black art. 
that that is sort of not conversations that we found interesting or important, that uh, the other conversations we were having were, were vastly more important than that. And so, mm-hmm. yes, they have PhDs. Yes, they're doctors. Yes, they're professors. But the greatest part about it is that, you know, the, the Cliff's a plastic surgeon who, who meanwhile, is, is, you know, struggling with, you know, a, a cocaine habit and, and is, is, his life is falling apart and he's divorced and his children dislike him. And, and Monk is this kind of, he's a, he's a professor, but, you know, you see that he's kind of pathetic and angry and resentful and, and miserable. And he's kind of, you know, he feels insecure and weak and, and, you know, these are people just with, with real problems. You know, I think that these are people who, who are just human beings. You know, in this movie, we watch Monk's creative process as he writes this book of stereotypical figures. There's a great scene where the characters actually come to life while he's he's writing it. And um, the characters talk back to him. They disagree with him in those scenes. Is that what the creative process feels like to you, that the, the characters disagree with you and then you kind of talk back to them in your writing, through your writing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that the the thing that, you know, I never, I I don't sort of like, I think that you can get a little twee about it and say like, well, the muse comes (laughs) and and like, and I call upon the muse. I'm not like that. I don't do it in that way. But I do think that you start to learn who these people are as the script goes on. You know, You, you start to you start to build these characters in your head and you start to understand them more from scene to scene. And then you start going, well, this is how Cliff would react here. You know, you need to, you need to just really start listening to yourself when you, as you build them and start trusting your own instincts as to how this character would act. That is absolutely true. And I think that every argument that you write into a screenplay should be a draw because otherwise it's going to be super boring. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you don't, you don't want somebody to win. Everything in my opinion should be, you leave there going, huh, I don't know who's right or who's wrong. The vast majority of human beings do not wake up in the morning thinking, I'm going to make somebody's day worse or I'm going to do bad stuff today. The vast majority of people wake up and they think, I'm doing what I need to do and everything that I think I'm doing is right. Mm. Uh, And so when you come at conversations and when you come at arguments and when you come at characters from that perspective that this person believes what they're doing is right, and so let's follow that logic that if you think what you're doing is right and this person think what's, thinks what they're doing is right, how would you guys interact with each other? And so those are the kinds of things that I think about when writing characters is just think about them as these are this is a person who is um, thoughtful and this is a person who is considered and this is a person who is making decisions because they think the decisions that they're making are the right decisions and then follow that logic and it allows you to start seeing these people as being real and distinct and not just kind of you know surface surface impressions of, of what humanity like kind of looks like our guest today is movie director and writer court jefferson we're talking to him about his new film american fiction I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air. We'll be right back. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. 
From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. International travel can be life-changing, but an unexpected emergency can make your trip memorable for all the wrong reasons. Allianz Travel Insurance provides benefits for medical emergencies, trip cancellations, travel delays, and more. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. Hey, it's Seth. And I'm Molly. We're producers at Fresh Air, and together we write the newsletter. It's a behind-the-scenes look at the show. We highlight interviews from the week, recommend things that we're reading, watching, and listening to, and give you an exclusive look at the interviews that are coming up. My dad raves. I love reading every week, even when I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Subscribe for yourself at whyy.org slash fresh air. Today we're talking to filmmaker Court Jefferson. He's written for Succession, The Good Place, Master of None, and Larry Wilmore's former late-night series, The Nightly Show. And he also wrote for Gawker's now-defunct website, where he was the site's West Coast editor. In 2020, Jefferson won an Emmy for Outstanding Writing for a limited series for the show Watchmen, along with Damon Lindelof. Court Jefferson's new satirical movie, which he wrote and directed, is called American Fiction. It's about a writer who can't get his novel published because it's not black enough, and is frustrated with editors who want cliched stories about black life. You take on different elements of anger in this film. Mock, uh, the main character, he has this seething, quiet anger that is clear in his very being. But then there's his brother, played by Sterling K. Brown, who is vocally angry. He's a gay man mm. who feels misunderstood. I'm just wondering, is there a therapeutic element to writing about anger and creating characters who are who are grappling with it? Oh, God, yeah, yeah. You know, I've had a... I think that I've, you know... I've known that I have a problem with anger for a long time. Since I've been in my 20s, I knew that I had a, an issue with anger. And, and what do you me mean a, by that? Like, what kind of anger? What does that exist? Oh, I used to, my, my anger used to manifest itself as, a, I, I used to get in a lot of fights in college. I used to. Like fist um, fights. Uh, yeah, but I never punched anybody. I've never, I've never hit anybody, but I used to get knocked out a lot oh <laughs> in God. college. I used to, uh, I, I used to, I really don't like bullies. And there was, uh, uh, college was the first time that I ever really encountered bullies, that people were bullying me. And, um, For I what? just, like what kinds of, I mean, that's an interesting question. It's like, why, why are you getting bullied? I, I don't know. You'd have to ask them, but I, but I think that, you know, I think that there was a racial element to it. If I'm being quite honest, I think that I went to school in the South. I had never, um, I had never lived in the South before. And so I went to school in, in the South and I just, I think that there was a racial element to, to it. You know, I, I got, I got picked on a lot at, in college for whatever reason. It had never, I had never been picked on before, but I started getting picked on a lot in college by, by, um, by a lot of football players. There was a, there was a, it was really sort of like high school cliche, but it was college. You know, I got knocked out a few times. It just, it, there was, 
Uh, and then, you know, I would get into arguments with friends and, and girlfriends and my family, and I would just distance myself from everybody, and I'd isolate. It was, you know, I, I, there was just... I still feel deeply angry, but I've just learned to... Channel I've learned it better ways to... Yeah, I've learned to channel it into my work. I've learned to channel it into other creative projects, and, and I, I do a lot of therapy. I take medication now. Like, there's just all these things that, that I've done to improve my life. And But that being said, I'm still really interested in anger as a theme and, and the way that it ruins people's lives and the way that, you know, it causes people to behave. That, that You know, these guys in this movie, Monk and uh, Cliff, these brothers, they're very angry for different reasons. Mm -hmm. and, and but 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 the thing that they both do so well, these actors, Jeffrey Wright and Sterling K. Brown, who portray these brothers, the thing that they do so well is that you see the anger, but what keeps you on their side and what keeps you rooting for them is that you see the pain that's underneath that anger. When you went to pitch this screenplay, you said, if you want this script, I come along as director. And I was just wondering, is that common in the industry to write a screenplay and then take that position? Um, no, I don't think so. I'm not sure. You know, I, I think that this is an industry in which a lot of people just decide to do one thing. And, you know, I think that my ignorance about the industry sort of helped me in guiding the career that I have, which is, you know, when I first started working in film and television, for instance, I didn't know that people who write for television generally choose one, like choose either drama or comedy. Right. It's sort of, the, that is, the, that is a path. And so when I got into it, I just thought that, well, I, I want to do both. You know, I, I know about both. I, I, I feel both happy and sad in my life. I, I, I think that sort of the, you know, human beings are, 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 you know, life is neither comedy nor tragedy. And so I just wanted to work on things that felt like life. And so, um, that that was something that I, I never considered as being sort of this this one or the other. And then when I started working in it more, I thought, you know, I'd, I'd like to try directing one day. Actually, a friend of mine uh, suggested that, that I try directing out because he said, you know, I thought that at first that I hadn't gone to film school, so I know nothing about cameras or, or lenses or mm -hmm. lighting. Um, and so this is not for me, but a friend... Uh, a couple of years after I started working in, in, in TV said, you know, you should you should give it a go. You know, you don't need to have gone to film school. You just need a vision and to be able to articulate that vision to to uh, the people that you hire to work on the film with you. And so um, that that kind of planted the seed. And, and so I started considering that and it took me about four years until I found until I found the book that, that I ultimately knew I wanted to direct. Cord, I, I want to talk a little bit more about your journalism career for a moment. Um, when I was a reporter, I had a white news boss tell me that I wasn't black enough. Um, I'm from Detroit, and he said he wanted me and my work to reflect more of Detroit Tanya. And I've also had bosses tell me that I'm mm -hmm. too black, that I focus too much on black issues. So it really shows like an impossible position to be in. Absolutely. There is really is no winning. And I'm just wondering for you, you had this successful career, even when you were a journalist at Gawker, and like you were able to step in and say, like, I'm, I like, I'm gonna make fun of this, and also talk about the fact that I'm kind of on the racism beat. But mm -hmm. had you ever had an experience where, basically, like the blackness meter scale came out on your your blackness? Yeah, yeah. I mean, th these are. I grew up in a weird household, very strange, in which uh, my father was a black Republican, my mother was a white liberal, 
Um, there was nothing sort of like there was no political opinion taken for granted in my household. There was constant churn of, of discussion and um, interrogation and sort of, uh, you know, it, it was a household where I learned very early on that it was up to me to, to make up my own mind about the world because, you know, I had had I was being raised by two people who thought about the world differently in, in, in various ways. And so there was a lot of healthy discussion in my household about our beliefs and, and, and what I believed and sort of not taking lessons from the media and sort of just learning to think for myself. And, and when I started sort of writing about race, I think that, yeah, that I realized that it was a, that, that topic in particular is, is one that's especially charged and, and, and gets people really polarized very fast. Yeah. And... Three months before I found the novel Erasure that I ended up writing, I got a note from a from an executive about this script that I'd written that they said that we want you to make the character in the script blacker. <laughs> and so th that note came through an emissary, and I told the emissary, I will indulge that note if the person who gave you that note um, will come to me and tell me what it means to, to be, be blacker. blacker. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. I, and guess what? That note went away because I'm sure that that person knew that if they were going to have that conversation with me, that they would be probably committing a civil rights violation, and so they, they can't have that phone call. But these are, the, you know, the realities of my life are, are, are a lot of the things that I, that I put into the film. Let's take a short break. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Court Jefferson about his new film, American Fiction. It's about a frustrated novelist who's fed up with the establishment that profits from black entertainment, which relies on tired and offensive tropes. American Fiction is Jefferson's directorial debut. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series about people's futures and how they can be reimagined. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Dive into the chilling new Hulu original series, Under the Bridge, the riveting adaptation of the acclaimed true crime book. Based on shocking true events, Under the Bridge tells the haunting story of a murder that lays bare a small community's darkest secrets. Go deep into the hidden world of the town's tormented teenagers as detectives race to solve the sinister crime. Starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone, Under the Bridge is now streaming with new episodes Wednesdays, only on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com NPR. We talked about this a little bit, but you spent a lot of time in white spaces. You grew up as a biracial black boy in Tucson, Arizona. You went to William and Mary College in Virginia, where there wasn't a lot of ethnic diversity. And in your journalism career, you were often the only black person in the room. Yeah. I grew up, you know, Tucson, Arizona has no diversity in that, you know, it has diversity in that there's a lot of Latinos. Um, but that's really it. You know, the, my, my school was was had a lot of white people and a lot of Latino people. And that was really what diversity meant. You know, there was there was a handful of black kids. We basically all knew each other and, and, and hung out with each other. But 
but um, other than that, there's not there's not a lot of diversity. And so, I grew up, you know, feeling very comfortable around white culture. You know, I feel uh, if 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 we can say white culture, I grew I grew up sort of like feeling very comfortable around white people just because I had to. You know, I had to. I had to sort of uh, learn how to do that in order to make friends and in order to feel comfortable going to school and in order to feel comfortable in social situations. Like these are, these are just things that I had to learn. And so I think that that reality probably has helped me along my career, to be honest. I yeah. think that I think that's sort of an ability to um, be comfortable as being the only black person in the room. It's, it's something that you have to learn how to handle if you sort of want to climb the professional ladder in this country. That's just the reality of the world. And that is something that I think I learned how to do from a very young age. I want to talk about something else, mortality, um, which, you know, is, is brought up in this movie. Um, there's, there's a thought and a through line of around mortality with uh, Monk's parents and his sister. And the last time that you were on the show, you talked about the death of your mother to cancer and donating a kidney to your ailing father and your own heart condition, um, which which kind of made you grapple with your own mortality mm-hmm. when that happened. But before that diagnosis, I also read that you you tell people that you probably wouldn't live very long. Um, yeah. Now that you're older, I mean, I guess you'd be considered getting into middle age or middle age. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm, I think I'm well into middle age. You're I'm well 41. into middle age. Yeah, I'm yeah. 41. I think that's... <laughs> that's early middle age. Okay. Um, <laughs> and we've also, as you mentioned earlier, been through a pandemic. How has your relationship with mortality maybe evolved or changed? Oh, I think I've gotten better about accepting it, to be honest. I think that the thing that I've learned recently about myself is that I just I was just desperate to be an artist I was just desperate to make stuff that's really what I learned about myself and I think that this is the first year I've been telling people that I think this is the first year that I might have ever uh, that I feel like I might be happy I think that happiness has been elusive for me my entire life Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think that I've ever I think that if you'd asked me ever sort of before this if I'm happy I I think I would have absolutely said no um and I don't even know if I'm happy right now, but I know that now I feel less turmoil just in my guts. I just feel less, um, um, you know, frantic energy in my heart. I just, I feel like far more at ease with myself than I've ever felt before. You know, I think that I, I am, I'm just comfortable with, with who I am for the first time in, in ever really. And so, um, I think that, and, and I think that the difference is, is that I'm just now making stuff, you know, I'm, and I, this movie is so deeply personal to me. And I think that, uh, my TV career was a successful TV career in many ways, but I definitely had this chip on my shoulder, um, that I never really talked about, which was the fact that I was working on other people's shows always. And, and I, and I, yeah, and I always had this nagging um, voice in the back of my head saying, um, can you do this on your own? Mm. What if you didn't have these bosses here mm. to hold your hand? What if you didn't have these bosses who, who, gen- who I'm pretty sure were all straight white men? What if, what if they weren't here to sort of, to help guide you? Would you be able to do this without them? And, uh, there was always that nagging feeling that just like, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I couldn't do this without them. And so, 
I think that just finally being able to make something and finally being able to, to, um, you know, feel like I am a professional artist and feel like I have a, a creative outlet and I'm able to, I'm able to channel these, these feelings that I have and channel this anger that I have and channel this pain that I have and this fear that I have into work. I think that's really allowed me to like exercise some demons that have been plaguing me for a very, very long time. And so I think that I've just, you know, I, I, I don't even really think about mortality these days as much as I used to. But I think that um, were I to, I, I think I would just, I just feel far more comfortable in every aspect of my life than I, than I ever have before. And therapy. Oh God, yeah, therapy, but also Zoloft. <laughs> therapy and Zoloft. Right? Yeah, I just, yeah, I just, I just started taking. I, I took my first dose of Zoloft on my fortieth birthday. It was my fortieth birthday gift to myself. I said, you know what? What took you so long? Were you ev- were you abstinent I was to it ter- at first? Yeah, well, well, I was t- I was abstinent to the fact that I was depressed at first. My mother told me she thought I had clinical depression when I was 19 years old, and I thought wow. you're crazy because I, you know, I was like, I get out of bed, I go exercise, I eat healthy, highly I go functional, to, I go to school, yeah, right. yeah. And the thing that the thing that I had a therapist tell me later was the same way that there's functional alcoholics, there's functional depressives. Like that doesn't mean you don't have clinical depression; it just means that you've learned to live this way and. So so I was reluctant to even, again, it goes back to not acknowledging weakness. You know, I don't want to say that I'm scared. I don't want to say that you hurt my feelings. I don't want to say that I feel depression. I don't want to admit that I'm flawed in this way and that sort of, and that, that this is, this is a struggle for me. Right. Um, that's how I used to think. And then on top of that, I was also scared that my creativity came from my pain. That sort of that 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 I would that I would take these pills and that it would go away and that sort of my ability to write and sort of like channel channel sort of like my darker emotions would go away. How long um, into being on Zoloft did that fear go away for you? That oh you're God. like, Inst- oh, I'm still instantly, creative. Instantly, instantly, like mm. it, it is truly changed my entire life. It has changed my entire life. I feel. Finally, I finally feel like I, I am. I am finally, like I said, coming into myself. And I'm 41 years old. I'm about to be 42, um, and so that it, it had a profound effect on me. And I realized that not only did it not hamper my creativity, it enhanced it. Like if anything, I feel far more creative than I've ever been because I've I've been able to clear out all these other negative thoughts and sort of make room for just creativity and make room for for thinking about all these other things i'm no longer thinking like if i go to this party will all the people at the party dislike me am i going to be a loser if i go there by myself or like if i if i go and speak in front of this large audience and am i going to say something foolish and everybody's going to make fun of me and laugh at me like all of these nerves and 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 sort of thoughts that i had that plagued me for decades now are just uh, i'm making room now for just you know being an artist and it feels really good Cora Jefferson, thank you for this conversation. No, no, it's, it's my honor. Thank you so much. Cora Jefferson's new movie is American Fiction. It's nominated for two Golden Globes for Best Musical or Comedy and Best Actor and opens in theaters on Friday. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mass Mutual. According to Calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. Mass Mutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can. 
like a mass mutual financial professional. For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirements, college tuition, and any other short or long-term financial goals. Learn more at MassMutual.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. Tenor saxophonist Jerry Berganzi is a Boston institution, a longtime educator and presence in the city's jazz rooms. He's made dozens of records in Europe and dozens of his own, alongside even more records as a sideman with Dave Brubeck and many others. Still, jazz critic Kevin Whitehead says Berganzi might be better known making records as good as his latest. Jerry Berganzi on the title tune to his album, Extra Extra. Back in the day, newspaper vendors would yell that to call attention to a breaking story. The album, Extra Extra, is deceptively casual. The saxophonist and some frequent colleagues play a few of his mostly older tunes. No big concept, no headline guest stars. But that relaxed setting is conducive to improvising, to creating in the moment without distractions. Even when Jerry Berganzi darts around the tenor saxophone, you hear his cool confidence, his poise and self-possession, as when he revisits his 2008 tune, Obama. Jerry Berganzi with Boston's Luther Gray on drums and bassist Harvey S. up from New York to produce the session. On Berganzi's oldie, Loud Z, floating guitar and a sunny bossa nova beat set up the leader for some Stan Getzy paragliding. But Berganzi has his own voice with its own cry. He's nimble, approaching a beat or chord from any direction. He gets a consistent tone from tenors top to bottom, that still has a softness to it, a vulnerability. And even when he's revved up, he leaves space in a solo to let pretty phrases sink in. ¶¶ 
Like many Boston jazz musicians, Jerry Berganzi also teaches. He has a series of jazz instruction books full of practical exercises to get players going. On his new album, there's good give and take between him and old allies. Those include trumpeter Phil Grenadier, who's on three tunes, including that bossa nova where he takes the album's first solo. One Bostonian newer to Berganzi's circle is guitarist Cheryl Bailey, who's crisp and boots things along with a light touch. As ever, buoyant jazz propulsion is in the rhythmic details, where you place a note and when you cut it off. There are also those small shifts in texture or dynamics, like the moment on Double Build when Luther Gray switches from wire brushes to drumsticks just before solo guitar hands off to tenor. It creates a subtle change in air pressure. Jerry Berganzi's album Extra Extra confirms that no matter how much or little pre-planning goes on, the success of improvised music hinges on the chemistry among the players. Like this crew, who listen and support each other, bring their own ideas, form temporary alliances, and give a soloist breathing room. Throw in a leader in full command of their instrument and ready to play, and you have Jerry Berganzi's recipe for music that's extra, extra good. Kevin Whitehead is the author of the books Play the Way You Feel, The Essential Guide to Jazz Stories on Film, New Dutch Swing, and Why Jazz. He reviewed Jerry Berganzi's new album, Extra Extra. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, the search for God and for meaning. We talk with poet and writer Christian Wyman. He says after he was diagnosed with a rare and incurable form of cancer, in spite of all of his modern secular instincts, he turned to what he learned to call God. His new book is called Zero at the Bone, 50 Entries Against Despair. I hope you can join us. To keep up with what's on the show and to get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. 
Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krinzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Teresa Madden, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.B. Nesper. Roberta Shurrock directs the show. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab Investing Themes, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.